Hello and welcome to Elapsed Gamer Radio Extrasode. Our good friend and past and future guest host Ryan Heyman of the excellent Kane and Rinse podcast was lucky enough to attend GDC in San Francisco this year and has very kindly recorded his thoughts on what he saw at this year's convention. So without further ado, over to Ryan. Hello listeners, Ryan Heyman from Kane and Rinse here. I had the opportunity to attend the Game Developers Conference in San Francisco this year, and here's a brief rundown of the most interesting and promising new games and ideas that I saw at the event. This is the first GDC that I'd ever been to, and it felt very different from PAX or E3 or any of the other kind of consumer-focused expos. This was more of a professional conference, and thus people were trying to just kind of share ideas and not trying to sell people their products. Rather, it was just a conference of peers speaking to each other about their ideas on a very kind of equal, non-showman-like level, and it was quite refreshing, actually. Not everyone got the memo, though, it seems. In particular, there was a booth, or uh, should I say a, a castle, dedicated to a mobile game called Clash of Kings. It projected its commercial on a giant screen above its eye-catching castle. Knights held sword duels on stage, and the spokespersons regularly went through a sales pitch routine to try to get more players for the game. Just felt a bit awkward and out of place. While something like that would fit in at PAX, it really felt out of place at GDC. I think that the company had misread the audience that would be in attendance that day. I hope it at least serves as a lesson for those hoping to apply for floor space in the future. The most prominent feature at this year's GDC was the virtual reality headsets, and all of the players in that race were in attendance. I had multiple opportunities to test PlayStation's PSVR headset, and Oculus's Rift as well. The Rift provided a superior experience, but the screens still do not provide as high quality a picture as I was expecting. Although to be fair, the Oculus that I was using was not at the Oculus booth, but instead at the booth of a developer, so it may not have been the most recent model that they've produced. But I can still see the lines between pixels, which is something that I hope would be fixed by launch. It performed beautifully though, as you would expect it to. You know, no real reservations on that one, it was just... uh, It is still a a wonderful experience. Uh, The PSVR was the biggest question mark going into the show. Launching at $100 less than the Oculus, it is regarded by some as being the cheap option, but in my experience, the tech performed quite well on games that I was able to test it out with. One big problem that that I did have, though, was that the PSVR was always blurry for me, like very blurry. I'm thinking that this is due to the fact that I was trying to test the headset on the busy show floor without enough time to really play around with the fit and get it properly adjusted, but this could be a big problem. I was able to find about maybe 20% of the screen in perfect focus while the peripheral was badly blurred. It made me not want to move my head so as to not upset the perfect little portion of the screen that was in focus, kind of defeating the purpose of VR. It kind of felt like looking through bifocals. I'm expecting that I would be able to find a comfortable viewing setup if I had the luxury of time in my own living room, but it was kind of a worrying experience at GDC. If I had to compare it to anything, it's like finding the correct viewing angle on an old 3DS and trying not to move your head from that very specific angle. Uh, This was a problem I never really encountered when using the Oculus, and I found that I like to wear that one a little bit lower on my face than, uh, than I would think that I would just by looking at it. But... I'm expecting that to be fixed, and if not, then that will be a uh, very prominent feature in the reviews, so wait until it comes out. Don't pre-order, as is my recommendation with just about any video game. Don't pre-order, 
wait to see what the reviews have to say. You'll know whether it works or not. To speak of the games I played on the PSVR, the tank game worked amazingly well, and despite my visual troubles, I was able to get a real sense of momentum when I zipped my tank around. It's always fun looking down at the control panel in front of my player avatar. I also played Res Infinity, a remake of the Dreamcast classic, and uh, was less impressed. Something about the experience felt a bit off, and I am a big Res fan. While it was fun being immersed in the world, I didn't really feel like I was there. Rather, I was just kind of watching Rez play on a screen right in front of my eyes. It's kind of a hard difference to get across. The difference is subtle, but it's noticeable. I don't know if it was projecting the same image onto both of my eyes instead of, you know, replicating what your eyes would be seeing since they are slightly uh, apart, which is why uh, watching videos of Oculus stuff, you see kind of two screens right next to each other because they need to give you that kind of three-dimensional perspective. I, I'm not sure if Rez was doing that, kind of felt like an experience of watching a flat screen rather than being immersed in a three-dimensional world, or maybe I just didn't like the aiming system, which was controlled by moving your head around. You could also use the joysticks, but um, yeah, the, uh, the aiming reticule was tied to where your head was looking as well. But I don't know. I just didn't care for the little bit of time that I got to spend with it. I was less impressed with that than any of the other VR demos I'd played that weekend. What was truly revelatory though, and definitely my personal game of the show, was Dreams, Media Molecule's digital sculpting and painting simulator for the PlayStation 4. Though the public did not get to play the game, representatives from Media Molecule demoed the game during the expo days on a large screen at IM8Bit and Double Fine's Day of the Dev section. Dreams looks absolutely magical though. The game uses two PlayStation Move controllers to give the player seemingly really deep control over the creation, painting, retexturing, duplication, and animation of shapes on screen to create extraordinary beautiful scenes in no time at all. It's really hard to describe to those who have not seen the game in motion, but it is stunning. Upon seeing their demonstration, I immediately ordered two move controllers for myself so that I can be ready to drop into Dream on day one, whenever that may be. This is definitely one for the more creatively minded players to keep their eyes on. Speaking of digital painting, I had the chance to demo a similar, although much simpler, digital painting game using the Oculus headset and a third-party company's proprietary haptic feedback VR motion controller. The feedback was cool and it did give a more tactile experience into the VR that was otherwise missing before. It was really cool to see all of the technology that different companies were building around the VR headsets. From the controllers to full body rigs, we really got to start to see the kind of collaborative identity of VR beginning to unfold. Also in the aforementioned Day of the Devs booth was a very curious new Double Fine published oddity, Everything. This was announced recently from the maker of The Mountain. Everything is a game in which players control anything in the game world from the bugs and animals to the stones, streetlights, and even the planets. When I was originally reading the pitch, I felt like I knew what to expect, and I was a bit disappointed to find that I was correct. It seems like the game consists of just moving objects around a rather flat, unimaginative landscape with rather minimal interaction involved. There's some cute writing peppered throughout the experience, but it still looks to be a rather bare-bones piece of software. The biggest thing it has going for it is, is perpetually changing scale, as a player begins by controlling objects at the atomic level and ends up by maneuvering galaxies around, but that doesn't seem to change the fact that the player is simply just moving around and doing little else. 
It isn't accompanied by the changing gameplay dynamics of Spore or the cutesy Where's Waldo-like crazy world of Katamari. It just seems kind of... forgettable. On the more imaginative side is Abduction, the new game from Cyan Worlds, the maker of the Mist series. The game, this time set in a fully explorable 3D world, operates much like its predecessors, solving environmental puzzles and progressing the plot by collecting video diaries. It seems to be another walking simulator, as they have come to be known, and the puzzles will be solved by observing and interacting with the environments in meaningful ways. And if this comes across as disparaging, it's not my intention, because this is actually the kind of game that I really love. There were two weaknesses to this build of the game that I was able to pick up on, though. First, it doesn't look great. For a game that's all about walking around and looking at the world, it's more important for this type of game to look appealing than most games. While it was pleasantly designed, its graphical capabilities were not doing it any favors. Textures were really rough, and foliage was far below the standard for modern games. I'm not usually the one to judge a game so harshly for its appearance, but in this case, the core conceit of the game is getting the player to closely examine the world, and this world doesn't really hold up under that, uh, that tight level of visual scrutiny. Secondly, the area that I explored was quite large. Larger than I typically like these types of games to be. Dear Esther and The Vanishing of Ethan Carter both suffered from this as well. When we're solving environmental puzzles, the puzzles should be fairly contained, but there was a whole lot of very slow walking between points of interest and abduction. Both these flaws may be due to the game still being relatively early in development. I'm hoping they kind of pack out the area with more to see and do, but um, yeah, I'm hoping that they're addressed by the time the game's ready for release. One game that caught my eye, mostly because I had previously seen a presentation about it by one of its artists in Toronto, was Pitfall Planet. It's a cute little puzzle platformer in the style of Captain Toad, played with two players. The puzzles I played were cute, small, self-contained, and it was a lot of fun communicating with the second player and working together towards our goal. It benefits from making its puzzles small, single-screen challenges. Those who enjoy some light couch co-op will have a good time with P Pitfall Planet. One of the real oddities of the show was Lion Wobbler. It was difficult to miss as it's on a piece of custom hardware that stood probably 20 feet tall or so. The entire game was played on a single line of LED lights that ran straight upwards, like one of those uh, test your strength of your grip carnival games, you know what I'm talking about there? You control a green light and must avoid a series of dangers as you attempt to make it to the top of a tower. All information has to be conveyed in very simple terms due to the setup, but it remained very readable and fun to play. It controlled with a very wobbly joystick, which could be bent upwards or downwards to ascend or descend the tower. Or the joystick could be jiggled back and forth to trigger a small attack. It was a terrific experiment in minimalist game design and communication of ideas to players in the simplest visual means possible. Highly recommended if the machine ever shows up at a show near you, although, <laughs> naturally, we won't be getting home versions of it. Chambara is a really cool multiplayer shooter that seems similar in execution to Screen Cheat from last year. In this competitive shooter, the graphics are starkly black and white, very high contrast, uh, meaning you know, literally ungratiated hard colors right next to each other in the style comparable to like Sin City or Mad World. Players blended right into the background if they were intelligent about where they stood, but they could be spotted when moving about or if the opponent is viewing them against a differently colored background. This leads to a terrific sense of not knowing quite where your enemy is and a visual obfuscation. Quite neat. Clang seems neat. 
It's a rhythm combat platformer with movement controls that seem similar to the on-foot portions of Velocity 2X and rhythm-based combat that seems actually kind of similar to Guitaru Man. Block enemy attacks in sequence with the music while navigating the world in Clang with a K, if, if you want to look it up. Slitched. Sklitched. It's, it's an unpleasant word to read out loud. That is S-C-H-L-I-C-H-T. <laughs> so your guess is as good as mine. It's another cooperative two-player game. Each plays as a white or a black circle, respectively. The players must work together to help each other reach the other end of the screen by blocking obstacles that would be damaging to the player, but not to themselves. It's kind of like Outland or Ikaruga in that way. It's about kind of um, color matching, and uh, but with a cooperative element. Um, I'm not sure if it can be played one player in the kind of like Brother a Tale of Two Sons type of uh, gameplay, but looks neat. Headlander. Though I didn't get to play this one, it seems interesting. Players control an astronaut's head, still alive and talking, that must attach itself to robot bodies but can detach and fly about when needed. The head can swap between bodies to solve puzzles or when a body is destroyed in combat. It's kind of like a cross between the Swapper and Never Dead, if anyone remembers that one. Arena Gods was a popular one, and it looked to be rather brilliant. It's a couch competitive multiplayer Hotline Miami type game. Players enter into gladiatorial arenas, controlling brightly colored fighters from a top-down bird's eye perspective. Players must pick weapons off the floor to stab or throw spears at enemies or whatever. Or players can simply punch their enemies until they're dead. The screens wrap like Pac-Man, meaning that if a spear is thrown, it can often fly through the stage three or four times before coming to a stop. Often, it would kill the person who threw it, leading to many hilarious deaths. This looks to be a marvelous competitive title, and Arena Gods is definitely one to look out for. It has a really stunning uh, uh, sense of speed and lethality to it, so, you know, one that I'll definitely look forward to playing with my couch multiplayer friends. I'm not sure if it has online. Mosaic is... well, actually, I'm not sure yet. <laughs> it has a lovely art style. Uh, they were advertising themosaicgame.com. I don't know what it is, but it looks really cool. It looks like the kind of thing that I would be into, but I, I just don't know yet, so <laughs> sorry. Can't be much help on that one. Uh, I should also mention the IGF and GDC awards. The IGF awards were entirely indie-focused, based uh, while the Game Developer's Choice Awards covered the entire breadth of the gaming spectrum. I agreed with most of the awards being given, and it got to be quite a running gag how often Sam Barlow was coming up to accept uh, awards for her story, which won IGF's Game of the Year as well. Uh, GDC's Game of the Year was The Witcher 3, which was a deserved winner to be sure, even though I'm not like the hugest proponent of that game, I still respect it for everything it was doing. I was a bit disappointed that Bloodborne didn't take home that trophy though. Uh, I don't think Bloodborne won any Game of the Years, which is odd. Just seems strange. <laughs> uh, Bloodborne didn't even win for Best Design, which is kind of baffling, but I, I digress. I, I feel like those in attendance were given kind of preferential treatment, as many worthy contenders such as From Software, Toby Fox, and Nintendo were passed over almost entirely in favor of those who were in attendance at the show. So maybe it was uh, they just wanted to give awards to those who would be there to accept them. Not sure, but yeah, you know, like Metal Gear was passed over quite a bit, and uh, yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> The controversy on the IGF side was that Undertale was passed over for everything just uh, except for the 
crowd favorite award. I'm not sure if that's due to voters simply believing other games to be superior, or whether that's uh, kind of backlash against Undertale becoming rather overhyped by the most annoying pockets of the internet. It's kind of unfortunate how communities can steer public perception like that. As for the ceremony itself, it was quite nice. The jokes and writing could have used a second or third pass, as most of it landed with really uncomfortable silence. But it still remained very professional overall. Tracy Fullerton, Todd Howard, and Notch, it's Mar- Marcus Burton, were all given special honors, kind of uh, lifetime achievement awards with other names, so to speak. Uh, Well-deserved, all of them. The ceremony was starting to go on a bit longer than I think they were expecting, and uh, yeah, you can kind of feel that towards the end of it. While at the conference, I had a chance to go to a number of panels. I attended a couple put on by... Uh, by Dr. B and Russ Pitts of Take This, a mental health organization for gamers that I've done some writing for. And it's always encouraging to see the message of positive mental health practices being shared in these contexts. I went to panels on black characters in games and black developers in the industry, which was an excellent collaborative session of brainstorming problems for uh, those of African descent face in um, video games and some of the small ways in which those problems can be overcome. I'll write more about that later at Kanan Rince's website. I went to a panel on the problematic depiction of Muslim characters in games, which concluded that while the obvious stereotypes like the jihadist militant and the only good Muslim is the westernized Muslim who has disavowed her beliefs uh, really need to stop, it's going to be quite hard to make progress until the image of Muslims in games becomes more common. And until then, everything will be, it will kind of feel like a tokenistic character. Uh, the most well-regarded Muslim character that the panel talked about was Altair Ibn al-Had. I, I don't know if I have the pronunciation of that down, but Altair, our good buddy from the first Assassin's Creed. Uh, though they remarked his name means the flying son of Nun, which is uh, makes sense because he was an orphan. Uh, this is actually really well-researched application of Islamic naming conventions, as his last name functions more like a uh, descriptive title that he was bestowed upon as, you know, his orphan status. Uh, those who adopted or who adapted the character to flesh out his backstory in later games and literature, though, I guess missed out on this and gave his father the same last name something that's already kind of uncommon in portions of the world that Altair is from and is uh, kind of nonsensical since his father would have also been named the son of Nun. It kind of defeats the purpose of the name, but uh, just a little funny story of a team not really <laughs> doing their research. I also had the chance to check out a really wonderful panel on very easy designs concessions that can be made in uh, mobile game design to accommodate those who have disabilities. These were really easy changes, such as making sure that subtitles were readable against all backgrounds, making foreground and background objects contrast more, differentiating between different types of objects by shape rather than color alone, and building in alternative color schemes for those who cannot tilt, multi-touch, or reach all areas of their touchscreen devices due to um, physical limitations. This very practical set of instructions reminding people of areas of design that are often overlooked and if people have access to the vault, the GDC vault, then I would encourage them to check out that um, panel when it comes up because I I found it very informative and uh, it is very important to have that conversation about how to make games uh, more accessible for wider uh, branches of audiences with various disabilities and um, 
from what he was suggesting, it, it sounds like uh, these changes are very easy to implement. So anyways, that is a little brief rundown. You know, there is there were hundreds of games there, and I got to meet and talk to some wonderful people and learn about some really exciting projects that they're working on in the future. And I, I'm sure I'll have some time to uh, to do some more writing about that over at canonrinse.com. But uh, for now, I am going to sign off with just that little, uh, just to wet your whistle for some of the interesting stuff seen there. But anyways, check back at Kana Rinse for more writing on that, including some of the more bizarre controllers, uh, custom hardware controllers that I got to see and play around with at the show floor. And uh, until then, see ya. Thanks again to Ryan for recording that for us. If you'd like to hear more from him, then I heartily recommend the excellent Cane and Rinse podcast. And you can find articles by Ryan over at caneandrinse.com. Ryan can also be found on Twitter at INSRTCoins. If you would like to appear on a future episode in any capacity, then please do get in contact with us. You can do so via our email, lapsgamerradio at gmail.com, on the Lapsgamer Radio Facebook page, or via Twitter at Lapsgamer. Thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.